hopefully hopefully we there will be four of us unfortunately um we are one eastern europe expert short but uh, with uh, the good natured host of this podcast we actually discovered that you're an eastern europe expert in your own right so thanks again for bringing us together and the hour is late um without uh, going with too many um lord of the rings uh, um illusions and with that, well, uh, Lucas, uh, kick us off. What's happening? What are we seeing before I walk um, the American viewers through almost a ticker tape of headlines we're seeing in, in Europe? And we'll see how that squares with what American viewers are presumably Let's seeing. Let's do so. Well, first of all, good afternoon, Christian. Good morning, Todd. Good so, morning. Good morning and good afternoon to all our viewers. Thank you for chiming in with us once again. Uh, the last time we were looking at modern day Russia and we were discussing Germany's kind of schizophrenic relationship towards Russia back in the 60s up to the to the 2020s, you could say. And today, after all the most recent actions by European governments, by the US government, also by the Russian government, uh, we're looking back into Ukrainian history, and that means we're going to talk about how Ukraine has been kind of a playground for European or Western diplomacy for way more than this um, Orange Revolution or just the fall of the USSR. And so together with Christian, Todd and Fabian, we're going to look at all the actors, that means Russian, European state actors and non-state actors. I want to make a daring attempt to look at what they've achieved and what they've not achieved. And let's be honest, we also want to find out where there's some good guys in this great game, as the Brits <laughs> called it one time. So thank you very much for joining us. And Christian, let me give over to you. Well, thank you so much, Lucas. Just to give our American viewers and listeners a flavor of what's happening in terms of the media perception, I've uh, sort of, I'll just read out a couple of headlines. I'm going to say where it is from. And it's a whole plethora of media from highbrow to lowbrow. Let's start with the not so highbrow, um, the UK Metro. It's essentially a newspaper that you can find for free in, in every train or uh, subway. And just a couple of headlines. UK NATO jets ready to scramble at RAF, meaning Royal Air Force Base at Lakenheath. I think there are also some American planes based there. And UK, we'll send troops to UK, Prime Minister tells Putin. Army's fifth rifles deployed to Estonia. UK, Germany disappoints NATO allies by refusing to allow arms exports. UK, Peter Hitchens, mail on Sunday. And now Peter Hitchens is one of the few beacons of light. He is a very independent thinker. So the um, daily UK Daily Mail is an interesting beast. It's sort of folksy in its tone, but it has also very analytical, very intellectual bits. So it's hard to uh, liken it to, to any other newspaper. And Peter Hitchens on Sunday said, if Vladimir Putin is stark, staring mad, then yes, he will invade Ukraine. But I've seen little evidence he is. He is nasty, he's cruel, sinister, intolerant, and many things. But you do not remain in power in Moscow for so long if you're a lunatic. Munich syndrome. NATO was sent, set up to deter aggression by the USSR, an empire that ceased to exist 31 years ago. He rightly points out that Moscow, so he, Peter Hitchens, rightly points out that Moscow, mostly without violence, let go of vast tracts of Asia and Europe and unwillingly permitted the reunification of Germany, something that Margaret Thatcher, a, a, a formidable lady who in a lot of ways rescued my current home country, uh, was very reluctant as well. 
So this is kind of Peter Hitchens brings in some sort of nuance, but we move it further into the more buzzword kind of news. So Peter Hitchens sadly is, is uh, a lone caller in the desert, as it were. BBC, Ukraine crisis, Nord Stream 2 pipeline could be axed, US warns. Interesting bit, little footnote there, the Nord Stream pipeline could be axed, uh, warns US, even though it's a German pipeline. So, so right. we, 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 might, we might as well look into um, what particular flavor that headline gives. France 22, Macron wants Russia, warns Russia will pay a very high price if Ukraine attacked. And then, now we're getting into uh, the comical headlines, The Guardian, the much-loved UK and US newspaper on the left, um, says German offer to Ukraine of 5,000 combat helmets is <laughs> a joke. And New York Times, aka, as I always like to call it, the daily warmonger, because I would like our viewer to challenge our viewers when the last time was that the uh, New York Times opposed any sort of war. Well, the New York Times says, Germany draws mockery for promising 5,000 helmets. And then uh, the BBC this morning says, Ukraine tensions. Joe Biden says U US citizens should leave Ukraine now. And Reuters this morning, exclusive yes to send 3,000 additional troops to Poland, officials say, and apparently that's the famed 82nd Airborne, and apparently, Lucas, you told me this morning, the ticker tape, Germany as well tells its citizens to get out now. Exactly. Um, German, broadcast, German public broadcasting also said so. And interesting enough, and just to be before I probably hand over to Todd sort of for the first sort of uh, exploratory discussion, the piece, a couple of interesting things happening in Germany, we kind of hinted then enough. So Germany is sort of not quite sure what to do here. So they have excluded uh, retaliating against Russia by excluding them from the international SWIFT payment system, because that would make it very hard for Germany to pay its gas bills. I mean, we could go full on Obama and send them plane loads of, of, of cash. That would be a way. But so far, the German political establishment <laughs> is not willing to go just there. Then, obviously, in Germany, we've got the impossible coalition, if there ever was one, of the Green Party, which I would consider to be ecological fundamentalists with hardcore Marxist core, We've got the Social Democrats, sort of moderate, sort of Social Democrat party. And we've got the, the, uh, the FDP, which are sort of the German libertarian-ish kind of party, even though they don't quite act like it. Now, they, they've gotten themselves into quite a pickle, whereas the Social Democrats are um, cautioning and seem to, uh, certainly the uh, German Chancellor Scholz tries to de-escalate. He does not want to send any lethal weapons into Russia, but apparently has offered 5,000 helmets, <laughs> which, you know, think of that what you may. Um, the Green Party, obviously, is very much against Putin because he stands for everything they object. It's patriarchal. He is a very sort of um, manly in his style and uh, authoritarian, but they don't, they, outwardly, they don't really uh, like war. So, so they, they're not quite sure what to do, but anyway, he's, they're he's too sexy for his shirt. This is exactly, exactly. <laughs> so so they, they oppose him on so many levels. At the same uh -huh. time, they are in their at the beginnings pacifist, which didn't stop them supporting the NATO attack on Kosovo in 1998. But that's on an entirely different um, hymn sheet. And then the, li li the German libertarians are not to be heard at all. So, <laughs> so we can cut that short. So you've got this interesting coalitions, coalition, which, uh, oh, yeah, and we have threatened to stop 
Nord, Nord Stream, that pipeline, which will hurt us quite a bit because with us shutting down all our nuclear power plants and with winters, you know, still being cold in Germany and fracking not being what it used to be in the United States, it's kind of the question, okay, we're going to threaten them <laughs> to not buy their gas. <laughs> that's going to be quite quite a threat, isn't it? Mm. Um, yes, so, so that's the the weird answer, probably Europe's most important continental land power economically, not so much militarily, doesn't quite know what to do. The French and the Brits are far more verbally aggressive and the Brits are actually sending advisors and actually mm. useful kit. Uh, the Biden administration as our ally says, we, can't, um, we need to shut down North Stream, even though that would kind of impinge on German sovereignty to a, to a degree. So that's what's happening. Probably Todd, all of this said your American take. What's the perception from the United States, or what what do you find most interesting about this really interesting um, situation we're in? Well, you've got a situation here where the public is not really worried about Russia and Ukraine. I mean, we've got trucks shutting down Canada and the United States as we speak, and that is the big story. The Biden inflation is the big story. It, 8% almost yesterday, you know, 40 years since we've seen that kind of inflation. And so people are just, Ukraine is not on their mind, but Joe Biden really wants it on their mind. So Fox News is and others are literally frothing at the mouth, trying to think of a more, you know, impactful, crazy headline that they can bring over and over and over and over and over. And they're just pushing this story and everybody's just ignoring it. So, I mean, you, you, it may be starting to punch through a little bit because people are like, wow, what's going on in Ukraine? Because, you know, Fox has been talking about it all day and, and Russia is going to invade. And, you know, it, so it's, it's, uh, it's almost a denial of reality that, that, that they're act, they're operating in, a, in another plane that nobody else really understands what's happening. I mean, that's kind of the way I see it. Uh, but I've written an article this week, and uh, you know I think this there's an agenda behind this. We just don't know exactly what the agenda is. Wh whether it's to take the eyes off Taiwan. I mean, Biden is completely working for Taiwan. We had information come out this week. His family took tens of millions of dollars. I know it's much more than that from the Chinese Communist Party. So he's working for Beijing. Uh, you've got uh, you know. So you've got Taiwan, you've got the elections coming up that they're going to lose literally probably 100 seats in Congress in the House. Um, you've uh, other tensions with the inflation, et cetera. So this is some kind of wag the dog, um, but we just don't know exactly what the agenda is. Uh, but we do. one thing we do know is that they have planned this out for a long time, for decades, what's happening in the U.S. and even in the West and in Europe. And so we know that they have a next step. We just we're guessing as to what it is. So that's where it stands in the U.S. at this point. I mean, it is interesting what you said about Joe Biden wants it on their mind. And I would say for the United Kingdom, <laughs> so does Boris Johnson. Uh -huh. And I mean, to me, it was really, really interesting. I mean, it's, it's sort of a, a lot of in a lot of ways, the times we're living in are an eye opener. And, mm -hmm. um, so we're for two years, everything like COVID um, displaced everything else, every other good story that should have been told at a societal, at an economic level and such. And then it was like COVID, COVID, COVID. 
And then suddenly Boris Johnson got himself into a bit of trouble because at the height of the lockdown, they celebrated fantastic parties by the looks <laughs> of it with him standing next to a person with a bottle of Verve Clicquot. And, and so obviously he's, he's, he's in a, uh, quite a pickle. And then it suddenly went from COVID, COVID, COVID to, oh, look, a war. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's almost this yeah. bizarre. Um, well, let me say one more thing. They're getting to the point where there's going to be real consequences from the paranoid propaganda. So whether it be with Nord Stream, whether if they take Russia off the SWIFT system, I mean, that has real long-term consequences. So, uh, and I saw a post, I forget who did it yesterday, that for this to work, Biden has to take it all the way to the edge and then call himself the hero. And I've stopped the war and everything's fine. So... That may be where we're headed. I totally agree with you on that. See, this is this is an interesting take, I think, from the uh, German perspective. How uh, we're basically just waiting to see what Joe Biden is doing or wants Europe to do. So it's like, yeah, well, um, let me see. If, if this was a big problem, wouldn't Germany be a little worried? And wouldn't Germany do more than five thousand helmets? No, well, <laughs> see, he, he, here's the deal. Here's the deal. They they try everything to make Germany send more. Even uh, you know the Klitschko brothers, uh, the boxers. Um, mm -hmm. They're yeah. they're very popular in Germany, and one oh, of really? them actually one of them actually became the mayor of Kiev some years ago. And he was in I think he was in German media, and he was like he's literally crying um, because they're so worried, and <laughs> all that Germany sends are five thousand helmets. And fr frankly spoken. I didn't even see. I didn't really see that issue about it because, um, on, honestly spoken, of course, the Green Party argument is super weak. Um, saying that due to Germany's history, they can't support any any party or any like not warmongering party. That's kind of like mm -hmm. you took the long the wrong lessons out of Munich, nineteen thirty eight. However. It wouldn't be the first time for the Green Party to have taken the wrong lessons, as with nuclear power, for example. So. What I think is just very interesting is that um, for, for some weeks we have this narrative of Germany needs to do more. Germany needs to chime in with uh, real arms. And like at this point, even you, even Ukraine apparently uh, noticed that Germany has no interest in doing this. And I think this is a very important thing, um, especially for the American viewers um, who see that uh, German Secretary of State Annalena Baerbock um, is traveling all around um, Olaf Scholz, the new chancellor, made it clear very quickly that um, foreign policy runs through his desk. So she's basically, she can do whatever she wants, but um, it's not that this government speaks with a split tongue. In the end, the decision that's going to be made is the decision that um, the Social Democrat Party is carrying and not, that the Green, not the one the Green Party is carrying. And I think this is something we need to keep in mind, especially um, for the foreign viewers. Um, Miss Baerbock seems to drag Germany into, well, I don't want to say she's dragging Germany into the conflict, but there's this, um, how they call it, value-based foreign policy that they try to play around with. And I think they're just not ready for any consequences. So I think Olaf Scholz has kind of taken the taking the pawn away from them. You know, it's like, the, I have the impression that Miss Baerbock thinks she's doing foreign policy while foreign policy is happening somewhere completely different. And hmm. this is just very, like, this is a thing to keep in mind that even though the German government is now um, consisting of three parties, being no doubt, 
it's happening what Olaf Scholz is saying, which also brings us to the point where the Social Democrats really stand. I think this is something for a completely different episode. It's interesting, um, just interject, Christian. We, we have a situation in the US where the Republican Party talked the big talk for decades about if we just get in power, we're gonna you know, really implement the conservative agenda. And when they got there, they looked around and said, wow, we really don't want this. We want the uniparty globalist agenda. And so they've really established in the back. But I think maybe in the U.S., at least where these parties have gotten so crazy, they've gained power. Now they're looking around and saying, wow, there's real consequences to this garbage we've been talking about for decades. But go ahead, Christian. Yeah, I mean, to me, and it's, it's, it's an interesting situation. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure which historian wrote it. I, I'm tempted to think Neil Ferguson, who wrote about the doomsday machine circa 1914. Mm -hmm. And the situations now, and again, I don't mean to laugh mm -hmm. about something that potentially has such great conference, uh, consequences, but it, so the situation in 1914 was nobody quite wanted the war, but we kind of got there. And once it started, everybody was sort of dancing on the street and that was that great romantic patriotic mm. adventure. And now we've got this even weirder situation where, well, some parts of the political establishment seem to be wanting at least to be seen as the peacemaker mm. and if not needing a war, but you've got so many other things on people's mind which society are that much more important well, you would say it's, it's, and it's that much more complicated than 1914 with everything involved. And I think probably it would be worth at this moment pausing. And I'm going to hand over to, to Lucas for a quick historical ex, uh, um, excursion, because it's always worth revisiting sometimes sort of the first principles or the premises um, on which military intervention is at least considered upon. And uh, so, for instance, I mean, for me, it's really, really interesting. Suddenly, borders are sacred again. I mean, in the United Kingdom last year, 60,000 known illegal immigrants came, came over the channel from France and uh, unimpeded by the Royal Navy. Instead, the Royal Navy was stirring up trouble in the Black Sea which, you know, it's almost like an inland sea uh, of, of Russia, the, the way I, it can be viewed, and certainly Russia views it that way. So the Royal Navy didn't do anything to secure British borders. Then in, um, in the United States, well, um, the Rio Grande doesn't seem to constitute part of a sacred mm -hmm. border. But suddenly, oh my God, borders are sacred, and haven't we learned anything from the um, post piece of uh, West it's quite amazing. It's quite amazing the level of propaganda they expect us to absorb and believe. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, suddenly again, borders matter. Suddenly, mm -hmm. we need we need to talk tough. And then again, we are we're looking into this bit, Ukraine, mm -hmm. as if it were one of Europe's old countries, always there, and suddenly it's going to be absorbed into Russia, at least part of it, and we cannot let that happen because sovereignty and Borders are sacred to us. Lucas, as sort of the Austrian in the group, I always um, stereotype you as having sort of a long historic memory from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Oh, Lucas is just on the other line. So, so I'm going to do a, a bit it's of... It's all great. Fantastic. Lucas, can you give us a sort of Ukrainian history 
101. And what is sort of that really, really interesting, um, I'm going to use the German word, light motif, that in recurring <laughs> issue throughout Ukraine's history, look at how old is this bit, where does Ukrainian history start? I'm, I'm handing over to you. Well, do you want to hear the Russian version of the story or do you want to hear the neutral version of the story? Try first the neutral and then... then yeah, there's only the neutral. Process. Well, see, for the neutral story, I've prepared something. For the Russian stories, just the Kievan Rus used to be what's Russia now. And this is why it's all important that this is in these European points. But come back to the original topic. So Ukraine as a country, as you know, today is a relatively new country. So... Basically, it shares one thing with me as an Austrian that is just like Ukraine nowadays is a multi-ethnic country with a more Western-facing population in the West and a more Russian-facing population towards the East. It's basically the same as Austria-Hungary used to be. Like we have this term Vielvölkerstaat in German, which is like a state of many peoples. So you remember, you look at this uh, multi-ethnic region of Galicia, which is now southeastern Poland and western Ukraine, um, you know, where Lemberg, Lviv is the uh, big city. This all used to be part of the so-called uh, Kingdom of Ruthenia and then was annexed by what was the back then Kingdom of Poland, which turned into the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth sometime in the 14th century. So you can see this is basically a region where there's always been uh, different rulers and it's not always been Russia's backyard because Russia, as you know, with, uh, with the first real czar, I think that was like um, Ivan IV, who's like even the terrible um, in German, even though in, in Russia it's just called um, Ivan the strict. Um, but basically, let's fast forward to uh, World War One. So now... We find ourselves in 1918. Hello, Fabian. So in 1918, uh, Western Galicia became part of what's suddenly the Republic of Poland, which then absorbed the so-called Lemko-Rusin Republic. And at one point, there's even been the so-called Western Ukrainian People's Republic. And then enter the stage for Poland, who suddenly attacking the newly founded Soviet Union, where, they were where the Soviets then tried to establish the so-called Galician Soviet Socialist Republic, which was liquidated after some months. So basically, you can see there's some Western involvement during this whole um, late 1910s and early 1920s with Western involvement, which has all been founded in this, you know, self-determination, which is one of the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is like 15 points of Woodrow Wilson? I think it's like 12 or 15 points. Anyway, um, in 1921, the so-called Treaty of Riga uh, was signed and suddenly the Russian SFSR um, tried to control the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, which then in 1922 became a member of the Soviet Union. And now, which is very interesting is that the term of Ukraine is actually introduced at this point only with this Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Like until then, Ukraine was not really the common term for this area. And interestingly, historically spoken, the term Ukrainian is more related to the Ruthenian language, which isn't spoken that much in Kiev, but it's more spoken in the area of 
Lemberg or Lviv, which tells you there's kind of like a Western facing populist or like Western facing focus. So basically um, the inception of, U- of Ukraine as a country, which we know nowadays is something that's been based or that has only been possible through the catalyzing effect of like Western diplomacy. Like, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, the Western powers were really quick in trying to drag Ukraine um, towards the West. That means uh, joining the International Monetary Fund. That means um, trying to, like, they're they're not an EU member country, but they're one of these um, aligned countries that the EU is trying to um, to have good relations with. And very interestingly, Ukraine wants to be a member of the EU so bad, but I think this really depends on who you're asking. I think west of uh, Kiev, everyone wants to be part of the EU. East of Kiev, I think it's less likely they want to do it. But basically, what we can all agree on, whether we're on the conservative or liberal side, um, Ukraine has had an issue with like different governments trying to not just do the best for the people, but also for themselves. So you remember there's been some revolutions, um, there's been um, some changes in policy for the for the younger people, just like me as an Austrian. Um, I remember how uh, Viktor Yushchenko, who used to be um, the prime minister of Ukraine sometime in the mid 2000s, um, I think was poisoned, came to Vienna, for example, like we all were very interested in Ukraine at this point. And then again, Ukraine for us Europeans is just, it's kind of interesting every second winter or so when they threaten to uh, turn down the gas pipelines um, just in order to have some diplomatic, how do you say, some kind of pawn that they can play with. But basically, this all accumulated in the so-called Orange Revolution in 2014, or as Europeans call it, the Euromaidan when the uh, government by, I think, Viktor Yanukovych Yanukovych headed government was overthrown. And then, I don't know, was it Yulia Tymoshenko who became the prime minister or was it um, Um, the chocolate king? Poroshenko. Um, Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Petro Poroshenko. And I think Mm -hmm. uh, in 2019 or 2020, Poroshenko did not get reelected. And now the TV comedian... Um, mm-hmm. whose name I don't have ready right now. Uh, Zelensky. The Prime Minister of Zelensky. Thank you so Volodymyr much. Zelensky. Thank you so much. So um, circling back uh, where I want to stop this kind of short story, you can see there's been a lot of um, NGO and government involvement from the West. And I think, Todd, you're the expert in this. Haven't the United States and its NGOs, haven't, haven't you all been involved in a lot of countries? Yes, uh, and we talked about this briefly in the last uh, episode, but Ukraine is the uh, Soros machine, if you will. It's completely run by this this uh, process of putting young people into these NGOs, training them in this Soros model, uh, globalist, you know, party of Davos kind of way of viewing the world that we're better, we know how to do things, just follow our lead and become our slaves. And And this is kind of how these people then are put into government uh, in Ukraine, and then they partner back with the NGOs, and it's a big money cycle. I think I saw a statistic that 50% of the money that goes to these NGOs is disappears, uh, and 50% may get to where it's actually supposed to go, whether it be you know helmets to the east or whatever. And so uh, there is grift, and uh, you know this is hundreds of 
millions of dollars of American aid that were laundered through the central bank under Poroshenko uh, to offshore accounts to London. Uh, you know, he disappears and now he's coming back for power. He's one of the most corrupt individuals out there. Uh, so it, Ukraine is controlled by oligarchs also. And so you have Kolomoisky behind Zelensky and you have other people with Poroshenko and you, these oligarchs are playing both sides in the East and the West to make money in Donbass. It's, it's a fascinating country, but it's corrupt as hell and it's not going to change anytime soon. One thing I do know, it should not ever be part of NATO that just the, the NATO alliance. That's not what it's for is to, you know, threaten the Russian Federation, which it, that I think Putin has a point uh, that there, there's absolutely no reason for that. And uh, I think the Germans see that as well. They see more economic opportunity in Russia and Eastern Ukraine and Ukraine itself. And the, the, the narrative that's being drawn is just completely false. I, I mentioned to you, I hope to travel there in a week or so, and maybe we can do the next show in country from Kiev or maybe even Donbass. We'll see. And maybe they'll even provide you with one of the German donated helmets. Um, maybe. That would be stage. quite an effective, uh, you know, stage prop, I think. That, that I think they're good helmets. I think let's not forget that the German helmets are high quality helmets. Um, first of all, Fabian, hello. I think Fabian made Fabian made a really good point some days ago when he introduced um, both Christian me to um, former German, I think, Rear Admiral Schönbach, um, who made some interesting comments in Ukraine. I think this has not been covered by you as media at all, has it? Well, actually, it was covered in the um, in the American Conservative, which I happen to be a reader of, and uh, just the backstory of this. Um, they uh, a uh, german um, admiral or chief of the the german navy was in india earlier um of january and um he basically had a conversation with the indian officials about germany's position to russia and um this conversation was tweeted out or filmed and then tweeted out and basically what the man said was um what does Putin want and how should Germany position themselves? <clears throat> he said, look, Putin wants respect. Well, uh, I'll, I'll quote it directly. It says Putin is probably putting pressure on that because he can do it and he knows that he uh, splits the European Union. But what he really wants is respect. He wants it on eye level. He wants respect. And my God, giving somebody respect is low cost, uh, even no cost. It is easy to give him the respect he really demands and probably also deserves. Russia is an old country, Russia is an important country, and even we, India, Germany, we need Russia because we need Russia against China, right? So I don't know if Admiral Schoenbach is part of the MAGA movement, but um, he sure knows that, or let's put it this way, he, he in, in, in my opinion, he's right on the spot. And um, I think he's completely right. But of course, what happened, there was such a big political outroar in Germany that he had to resign. The whole media uh, uh, bashed this whole thing and they heightened it. And of course, Admiral Schoenbach resigned. Um, but this just shows you how tense this whole thing is. And in my opinion, blown out of proportion, because again, the guy is speaking the truth. He's saying Russia wants respect. It's not that hard to give him respect. And geostrategically thinking one step further than some of these other people that are sitting in Berlin and especially in D.C., telling him, look, we need Russia against China. And I think he's completely right. 
I see that as, you know, I see our government, I see everything goes back to Beijing and uh, becoming more and more, uh, I guess, enshrined in this view as we go on, because I think what Biden is doing, what the social justice, culturally Marxist push is doing, and even with that comment, if you look at it against China, I see China behind the media in the West to shut down this admiral. Um, so I, I really think we're up against an existential threat for our way of life. And China is the boogeyman, in my opinion. I mean, interestingly enough, um, mm -hmm. like one podcast, which I quite enjoy for its independent thinking, is that of Scott Adams, the guy who draws the Dilbert comics. And he said verbatim what you said, China mm -hmm. gets German admiral fired. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's one interesting bit, just so for the viewers, after Lucas has given us that great expose of Ukrainian history. So we see a state that is quite recent and a state that from its inception had this part of what you would roughly define as Ukrainian would be around the Ruthenian language. Now, most many Ukrainians don't even speak Ruthenian. It's more spoken in the West. And at its core, there's Kiev, where most people, its capital and biggest city, most people don't even speak Ruthenian. And the Russians, through their history, see uh, Kiev as one of the nucle nuclei of, of Russian history. And there's something interesting. And probably, so I always love to talk about statecraft. And mm -hmm. uh, Lucas, great fellow countryman, long dead, since Metternich, who did brilliant architecture of, of sustainable models, you know, kept Europe. Interestingly, I need to interrupt this point. In interestingly, Metternich was not an Austrian at all. He was just serving the Austrian emperor. But Austrians are really happy to point out that Metternich just had Vienna as his playground. However, I think ah. he was from Mainz in Germany. I see. Well, then we, we, oh, we claim Metternich happily. Um, but interesting enough, there is another guy who has got a Metternichian approach for all his other flaws. So we could have episodes on him, Henry Kissinger. And Henry Kissinger always, oh, before I come to Kissinger, so the interesting thing that Metternich wouldn't have done, I mean, so far we've seen a threat going through Ukrainian history. It's sort of mm -hmm. this weird, I wouldn't say artificial, but in part artificial creation first by the Germans, then the Austrians, then a lot of Western interference in what was then the Russian civil war of like, you know, the Bolshevists against the um, white Russians and what, whatever they were called, lots of Western interference. Then come the Soviet Union, Ukraine gets absorbed as part of the SSR, one of the states that ends and suddenly Ukraine becomes a playground of a plethora mm. of often disparate Western uh, interests and NGOs here and hey, follow this, follow that. We've seen mm. part of it even playing out the same way in Afghanistan. And what it always seems to do is leaves a trail of destruction in its wake and, and countries that just don't work. And 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 then then I'm coming back to Henry Kissinger, <laughs> great Metternichian, in, uh, as it were. And Henry Kissinger always said something, Fabian, that would perfectly square with what the German admiral says. He's like, always make sure that either Russia and China are closer to us than they're to each other. And at the moment, we're doing a great job at actually inverting that. And we haven't fully explored what that getting Russia kicked off the SWIFT system would mean. Mm -hmm. It would definitely mean that probably China would, would be ha um, um, happy to comply with a new alternative system mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and even binding Russia even closer. And Todd, you, you're well connected mm -hmm. and have got great networks. First of all, 
Kissinger, does mm -hmm. he still um, have a say in this? Are there Kissinger right sort of sources in the US establishment anywhere that could give us some hope that some people are seeing it in this way that in the long term, Russia got far more overlap in the Venn diagram with us, the West, than it does have with China? Oh, there, there is a big, uh, I guess, uh, cadre of people in the United States who see it that way, for sure. I, I think they don't really maybe understand all the nuances and historical context, but that's what Eurobytes is for, and we'll fix that for, for them. But uh, there is definitely a contingent that sees Russia and the US as natural allies against Beijing. And uh, I think we need to, and that's what Trump was trying to do. And so this, this uh, push to demonize Russia and I always say this, I'm not a Putin fanboy. I, I, I know what's going on in Russia and it's, it's not good from the, the civilian perspective, or I should say the middle-class perspective because he's, the, the economy is shrinking, the people are being repressed, the opposition is being repressed. But um, that doesn't mean we can't find ways to work with Russia and we should. And starting a war is just insanity. And the, the SWIFT issue really would hasten the destruction of the United States financial system or the Western financial system and because it would push any major players away from that system. And I think that's what part of this is. All of this, as I go back to China, is to destroy the Western system. And if they can destroy the Western financial system, that is, uh, you know, the, the, the ultimate goal of what, because that's our power against China and they know that. And so they're going after it at, to the beating heart and being able to use dollars as reserve currency is that beating heart. And, you know, they're trying, we're, we just passed $30 trillion in debt. So we're going to have a big showdown here in November. And it's going to go one way or the other. If we don't take back power and stop this Biden avalanche of insanity, then Western civilization is at real threat. If we can take back power and stop this, then we have a chance of, over time, fixing these structural problems that Biden has input into the system. This is, I think this is a really interesting point that you also just mentioned with the financial system. And Christian already mentioned this before um, with the, the uh, sanction of kicking Russia out of SWIFT and how they did not do that, which in my opinion is something that German Chancellor Scholz is actually mainly responsible for not having pushed this red button. I think uh, Fabian has joined us uh, very recently. Um, What's your like? We were discussing um, very shortly only the uh, the question of how Olaf Scholz is handling all this stuff. And like, I think um, I think you're basically the one who, who's the political scientist among the German-speaking crowd here. So, uh, what's like your take on how Scholz is handling this? Well, <clears throat> when um, when Ice Age Olaf was visiting um, uh, Joe Biden the, these past couple of days. I was I was um, I was not surprised by his um, subordinate, but also uh, position of 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 let's say nothing at all. I mean, I found it defiant. I found it really defiant that he did not even mention the the term North Stream. Level. Well, and I think to just to just to add on to it. I mean, look, Joe Biden loses it with any other journalist. You can mention inflation, and the guy just loses it. He is so unstable, but the only person he was able to manhandle was Olaf Scholz, and that's pretty bad. I mean, think about it. Biden 
clearly said from this Wilsonian internationalist arrogant standpoint that we will end Nord Stream, right? We will end. And, and Schultz said nothing, absolutely nothing. He knows he's in a dead end. He knows he's in a very bad position because on one hand, German energy policy has led the Germans to um, dismantle its nuclear power, its coal, and it's depending on Russian gas. So, um, so, so it's, it's not uh, energy sovereign anymore. And on the other hand, you obviously have somebody like Biden who's going to push this issue to the edge. And Biden has to because Biden, um, actually, guys, I had to watch Whack the Dog again just because <laughs> we talked about it. But this is reminding me exactly of it. I mean, it is blowing up in its face everywhere. In Canada, things are going uh, to the opposite end of what the Biden Trudeau people would want. Um, in America, things are heating up. The midterms are going to be a disaster. Let's hope um, for them, right? But if, if we have an election. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. That would be the next thing, right? <laughs> um, who knows what they'll, what they'll come up with. But the point is, it's blowing up in his face. So he's going to have to put some pressure on. And Scholz has nothing to put against him. I mean, he could have acted sovereign and said, you have, you have no right to tell us that you can stop a pipeline um, which we as a sovereign nation have decided to uh, build, right? I mean, he, there, there's, no, there's no dog that Biden has in this fight, but he still says it. And Schultz didn't reply. But look, the thing is, this goes deeper. Germany is in such a dead end because it's positioned itself to be profiting from American security while at the same time trying to do deals with Russia. And we talked about China. I'm not done with China. China has probably the most Confucius institutes are in Germany. China's cultural institute mm -hmm. is located right across the street from the CDU party headquarters. China is culturally trying to establish itself within Germany because it sees it as an anchor country. Look, where's the One Belt, One Road project ending? In Duisburg, right in the middle of Germany. And so... Um, Germany is trying to play both sides. And that's the problem. You can't do both ways. And <clears throat> if they continue to go down this road where you're going to continue to have weak leadership that will bow down to anything their counterparts will say. So my answer, this long answer is, I think he did a terrible job. He, it, it, was a, it was a stumbling act of unsovereign weakness. That's my take. Um, and, okay. and, and to be really challenged by another weak ruler who's heading towards being 80 and doesn't remember where he's at, it's very bad. Does it, I think this, let me ask a question. Does anyone in Germany realize that this is the end game of climate change, is the destruction of your energy and your sovereignty and, and your ability I, to be a Western nation? Is, does anyone understand that? Go yeah, I, th I think so. I, th I think so. And uh, it's, it's really interesting how this whole thing is now slowly getting to German people's mind. Now, the thing is, for the past decade or so, um, it was basically like, as long as you were not completely off the far right side, everyone was like, there's like this um, consensus that we need um, energy policy to change and all that stuff. You know, in, in Germany, power prices are the highest in the world. Like if, if you're a consumer and you pay your electricity bill, it's the most expensive electricity bill you can get anywhere in the world. Interestingly, um, it's it's actually cheaper. Uh, no, it's, it's actually even more expensive than if you were to live on Curacao, um, this, you know, the, the Dutch, um, I, I was the Dutch island. Say, 
let's be fair, the British Virgin Islands and apparently Belize got, uh, are at a par. <laughs> yeah, no, we actually, um, Germany's like um, doing electricity in Germany is actually more expensive than doing it in the middle of the Caribbean while paying in euros. So that actually tells you something. And now the thing is, for years, we've accepted this. Now, the question is, why is energy so expensive in Germany? It's because um, here you have it again with Germany trying it both ways. Consumers pay the highest prices so that um, the industry doesn't pay these high prices. So uh, in Germany, there's the so-called EEG fee, the Erneuerbare Energien Umlagen Gesetz Umlagen, which basically means it's a, it's a surcharge on consumer electricity prices to fund people who have their own um, photovoltaic stations for people who um, put money into weird funds that built um, like windmills and all that stuff. So after all, um, Germany's managed to be in a place now where electricity has become so expensive that many, many people don't know how to pay their bills. And now, alas, the government comes up with this idea of paying them a one-time subsidy and finally also abolishing this uh, renewable energy surcharge. But now, here's the interesting thing. Germans actually took all this without any discussion. Like, Todd, come back to your question. For the mm -hmm. last 10 years, the position of being like, why don't we just build huge nuclear power plants? I mean, even the conservatives would be like, yeah, nuclear power. You know, it's like Chancellor Merkel said, we're going we're gonna to end nuclear. So we're going to end nuclear, right? Um, so we've, we've reached that point where we, we're constantly looking at France, who's doing a great job at fusion power. There's like in southern France for, for the past, I think, 30 years, they paid billions and billions of euros into this fusion power plant. And let me tell you one thing, the moment it's going to work out and they can actually uh, make electricity from it, Germans are going to make it so efficient at one point that, that everyone's going to believe it's been German technology that's been developed here. But the sad thing is no one was interested at all. And now suddenly come Fridays for Future, you know, these uh, teenagers and young adults who leave school early on Friday so they can uh, demonstrate and gather in public places and block traffic. Germans were like sympathetic towards that. Then came Extinction Rebellion last summer. I think they came over from the uh, UK and they're like, you know, they're a bit more radical, I think. And now also from the UK came Insolent, Insolent Britain. And Insolent Britain in, on the continent doesn't really work because our houses are insulated pretty well. So there's this new group, I think they're called... Um, Essen retten, Leben retten, like save food, save lives. And you know what they do, Todd? Um, Monday, Monday morning, Berlin, Hamburg, Cologne, big cities, you name it. You know, where the, where the highways end uh, towards the cities and people, it, it's 6.30 in the morning. People want to go to work. It's Germany. Yeah, and there's people who uh, take old food that they, I guess, take from trash bins and throw it on the street and then they make and then they sit in front of it so they basically they make a sit in at the end of a highway no, no, Luca, talking uh, on their they, talking on their iphones right they they glue them <laughs> this is the better part no they actually glue themselves to the streets yeah and yeah, exactly and, and then they sit there and you can't get them off but the the thing is what i love about it, it it's backfiring heavily because and that's what i wanted to say Right? Germans, exactly. They, they. Um, I'm trying to look for more diplomatic terms. They, they caused some anger with the working class German, and now uh, the working class German um, isn't just the one who's working in the factory because thanks to her 
deindustrialization as if there were any factories in Germany anymore. Um, they're also keeping people out of the offices. They're also keeping people off the schools. Like you, you have these videos that are being broadcasted in the online portals of big newspapers now. You have people screaming. They're like, I want to bring my kids to school or I need to pick up my mom for like a doctor's appointment or so. And now uh, the climate people have reached the point where it actually bothersome for the general population. Like when they gather on Fridays, um, like 10 or 11 a.m., they didn't really cause any trouble to public transportation because people like the, the people who run public transport in Germany are actually pretty good. I think um, it's like the fact that we we use all these things for a comparatively nice price, even even when it's not overly subsidized, like in Hamburg, shows that public transport is a thing that doesn't really mean you're poor or you don't have a car or you need you should have a car instead. But now doing this on Monday mornings, and like literally every single Monday in Berlin, in Hamburg, in Cologne, in Munich, in Essen, in Duisburg, in Frankfurt, in Hanover, in Stuttgart, means that people are finally um, getting fed up. And this is the point where I think the whole climate policy is going to lose. You know, the greatest thing about is um, when the Greens got into the government, Christian Feynman and I were secretly smirking because we were like now at this point fridays for future have to deal with their own people in government and now they see that they can't deliver and that's a great thing we should have them talk to the russians and learn from the russians and actually nail their testicles to the asphalt and that would be a much better way to uh, protest i think <laughs> that would be much more dedicated <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so pro probably just coming to think about Russia again, and maybe that's sort of a foreshadowing for the next mm -hmm. episode, um, you know, just uh, depending how much time you still got. I mean, the one thing that we need to be clear, like Russia is a country in trouble. I mean, either way you, you mm -hmm. spin it. I mean, the, it's its demographic is crumbling, I think, um, heavier than even the most um, both lazy Western European countries. So, I mean, it's crumbling ethnic Russians. Um, I mean, they are disappearing so quickly. And I think I've heard an expert saying, I mean, Russia essentially has eight years to sort out everything and get things back on track, or they're going to be in deep, deep trouble. But what that means, it's such a vast country spanning over such a mm -hmm. large area, um, you know, deep into Central Asia. And we will have a separate episode on Kazakhstan, which is another interesting chapter, mm -hmm. all the way up to Siberia. Um, having that country implode or hastening anything that um, destabilizes that country, that makes that country spend a lot of resources on military expenditure and um, you know, squaring off with the West, it's, it's going to be disastrous well beyond Europe, um, um, you know, well beyond American worries. And so I think this is what we all need to bear in mind. Yes, right now it's happening in Europe. It's happening in a country that's been that favorite playground of NGOs and State Department interference. Um, and this is the, the one thing that, that we need to be most worried about and probably rounding off um so probably asking and then in germany we, we have the saying we want to name the ross uh, the, the 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 horse and the rider mm -hmm. um who are 
the hawks who are the doves and probably i'm asking the question to you first todd in terms of mm -hmm. congressmen that um, probably should receive uh, feedback from their constituencies because they're quite hawkish here and who are the congressmen that need to, to be helped and then probably to fabian and lucas who in our political system in germany and, and beyond should should receive report and uh, support and who probably needs a stern talking to probably to you todd first who mm -hmm. actually are the most outspoken hawks um, in the well US? first let's just let me say china is is going to eat Russia, um, and they don't need to do it with cultural Marxism. They're doing it by the West forcing Russia into their arms. I mean, there's vast tracts of Siberia that will no longer be Russian. They've been leased to Siberia. They're going to go after the minerals. Um, so yes, as Russia declines and Putin is not doing anything to reverse that, um, that will be the consequences. And consequence. And so that's why we need leadership who can see that we need the Russian people against the Chinese, um, and I think that Russia is also waking up to the, at least Russians to the Chinese threat. Maybe not the government in the U.S. Um, I don't see anyone who is voicing that vision. Uh, to be honest, uh, you've got from I think people are scared to to say that because of the consequences. We have a lot of very afraid people in our leadership, which is a real problem. Hopefully, that'll change at the end of the year in Congress, but we will see. But I don't see anyone standing up um, uh, on that issue, to be honest, and, that, and that's a shame. But there's plenty of people who are on the other side trying to demonize Russia, um, but I, I think that uh, that's a, a dead horse that needs to be re revived. Right. Well, moving on. And I mean, sadly, I'm, I'm going to mm. say this. It, I mean, as sort of conservatives, there's almost this trope, we need to talk tough, we need to be mm -hmm. tough. And and so then we suddenly join into with suddenly the, the liberals who suddenly start talking, like rediscover, That's happening. Their, yeah, yeah, rediscover happening. Their, 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 their testosterone and suddenly, oh no, we need to be. And I always wonder about the agendas. We had Tom Cotton come out this week and say, yeah, Russia's going to invade Ukraine tomorrow. And I'm like, what? You have the intelligence. I mean, you see this, you must be smarter than that. But he's made some weird decisions. It's it's almost like there's this you know globalist government who's pushing buttons whenever somebody jumps out of line and pushes them back in with threats or whatever is going on. Who knows? So probably brings us to closer to home, Fabian. Like apart from the admiral, the, uh, by the way, I mean that man got fired. He didn't say that in public. I mean he said it at an internal gathering, some sort of security gathering in India, and got fired for for speaking the truth, and as Scott Adams so, uh, said correctly, got fired by China. Fabian, who turned out to be the most hawkish and the most dovish or the most reasonable people in the German political establishment at the moment? And probably if you were to venture a guess, a guess who's got the upper hand, who's got the majority, if that's even visible in the chaos right now. It's really hard to tell because we're such a mishmash of... Uh consensual politics there's really no hawk or no uh, dove that you can point out it's the i think that the weird thing about it is the following <clears throat> the most hawkish against russia were the greens before the election right it was it was foreign minister annalena baerbock is still in a role as candidate for for chancellor she said well we're going to take it on with all the tyrants we're going to take it on with all the tyrants 
all of a sudden she's the one that says, well, we're just going to deliver helmets to Ukraine. So um, the, the Greens were, and then they were struck with reality. The, um, the center conservative union, so CDU, CSU, um, CDU, CSU, Now that they're in opposition, have have both leaders, Markus Söder of the Bavarian CSU and Friedrich Merz of the, the CDU, have both stated that Russia is not the enemy. Russia is critical at the moment. I think the key player, actually, um, to get some somewhat of an alliance, somewhat of a uh, structure back would be the CSU, because the, the Bavarian CSU has always had a very historical, strong tie Uh, to Moscow um, on a on a level of strength, on a level of economic cooperation. Um, and um, Marco Söder visited Putin. I mean, he's like he, he I don't know, he's almost seven feet tall. So he towered him when they he when he took a picture. But the thing is, he he's openly said that there has to be a new kind of a dialogue. So I can't see them as a hawk either. Um, And and the and Olaf Scholz's party, the SPD, we all know they're completely split apart on this issue, because the biggest Russia lobbyist we have is former Chancellor Gerhard Schröder, who's now in the uh, what what's the newest position he took in Gazprom or? I think he's in the um, on the board of directors, but he's like in the um, advisory council of um, of Gazprom. Right. So so the SPD, the SPD, them, the Social Democrats themselves are very split on this issue. Again, the whole country is very split. I think the only one who's very hawkish on this whole topic is the media, the German media, especially, unfortunately, Springer, the Bild Zeitung. They are very anti-Russian, very hawkish. And I think this is almost like a Cold War reflex when, they, I mean, Bild Zeitung, you have to remember, I mean, this was a, this, this was a pretty awesome thing. They built a golden skyscraper in Berlin, right next to the Berlin Wall, saying this damn thing's going to fall and we're going to be the winners. This was a pro-Western idea. And I liked it. And they built that, that building to, to basically spread Western news to Eastern Germany, Eastern Berlin. But they're still in that mindset today. Unfortunately, I think they are. They are they're not seeing a, um, a grander vision for Europe. And, and let's, let's face it, we, there is no leader. There is no leader in the West at all that has a grander vision for Christendom, for, for Western or the Northern Hemisphere of the globe. There is no vision. Putin, I mentioned this in our last podcast, had a, a speech in the German Bundestag, which laid out somewhat of a, of a East-West vision of cooperation. Gorbachev had a kind of a vision, building the House Europe. Um, so th there were these offers, but the West never um, really um, extended their own hand and said, this is our idea, or this is how we could do it. So th th this, is the, this is my biggest point of critique. I... I I can understand if Western leaders criticize Russia or even say we're going to be somewhat hawkish, we're going to protect NATO territory. That's one thing. But there is no one who says, but our other options are this and let's lay them on the table. Um, and that's really what's missing. Yeah, um, I'd like to follow up on this. And I think Fabian, Christian and Todd, I think you all did a great job on pointing out here like the hawks and the doves, especially Fabian, I think... 
I absolutely agree with you on the take that the, the, the Green Party has been the more hawkish part and that surprisingly the CSU has been the more devish part in this whole thing. And um, I'd rather get away from the people and just make a short, um, how do you say, mention that, especially to the American viewers who might not be into the depths of uh, German policy that much, which is totally okay. I think what's been really interesting is that some weeks ago, the uh, the general political climate was more hawkish towards uh, Russia, I'd say. Um, this is at least my perception and from interviews with like foreign policy experts from political parties, such as Roderich Kiesewetter from the um, from the CDU or even Norbert Röttgen, who who tried to be the chairman of the CDU party and then lost to um lost to Friedrich Merz. Now, the, the interesting thing is these politicians were kind of hawkish um, just over the last months. And they were like, yeah, why are we actually just delivering these helmets to Ukraine? And at one point, I think Ukraine overstepped their boundaries. And I think they, they thought they had a better set of cards than they actually had. Um, so there, there were Ukrainian politicians in the German media, for example, like um, in Deutschlandfunk, which is like one of the um, a more more information it's basically like german pbs you could say NPR, um, like NPR. german npr yes german npr radio yes um they had a they had the ukrainian ambassador um i think talk and he mentioned that yeah ukraine's very disappointed with germany and all these things and at one point i think this is where the public climate also started changing and i think this is like saving i absolutely agree with you the springer newspapers that is built that is built um they have been very much on a hawkish trip but um at one point ukraine just started being like yeah why is germany actually not doing anything and then german politicians came up saying like hey listen up germany is the biggest spender in development aid for ukraine germany's paying like billions every single year to ukraine um and German politicians were like, stop, this needs to end at this point. Like Ukraine cannot ask, like in German, we say um, you can't have the cake. You can't eat the cake and have it too, basically as well. And I think Ukraine just overstepped their boundaries. I think at this point, uh, Germany has taken a more um, dovish approach in total, simply because the Ukrainians or the Ukrainian government thought that they could ask for more and more and more. And let's let's face it. 5,000 helmets are 5,000 helmets. My home country of Austria gives nothing. Um, probably that we're coming up against the hours. So probably the privilege of the host of the show, Todd, probably some final words. Um, probably if, if, if I were to put my own spin on Germany, it's laudable that Germany isn't all hawkish on it however they're not brave enough to say so they're not brave enough to say okay this is madness let's stop it um instead they're having this uh, we don't quite know we don't really want to but we're not really speaking up against joe biden and <laughs> we, we don't have much spine in that whole event probably final thoughts um from your side todd before probably hopefully um in a week or so we'll see you um yeah, somewhere in ukraine wearing one of our yeah helmets. I, I i think the, the what needs to be known by our audience is that in ukraine this is not an issue people are not worried about an invasion they're you know if you go to someone on the street in ukraine and say you know the, the russians are coming they'll say oh that's great but just just don't make sure i get my visa to the eu that that's that's all that's all they care about so with that i'll i'll leave it I'll leave it alone. All right.
Well, thank you. And thank um, you so let's much. see where things will be in a week from now on. Thanks, guys. Thank Take you. care.